Good evening. You're listening to the Parliament of Rooks podcast, episode 36, the only 12 cent now cast. Look out, here comes tomorrow, that's when I'll have to choose how I wish I could borrow someone else's shoes. Welcome to the Parliament Rux Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Lanise. And this is his wife, Melanie Lanise. Uh, so tonight, we have a, a bit of a different kind of episode, you know, of Parliament of Rooks. Um, wearing my Chelsea boots, uh, sipping on a little bit of uh, rum and black, because uh, <laughs> uh, tonight, DC Comics goes mod. Um, we've talked before about the, uh, you know, American culture in the 60s, and I keep, like, saying that little phrase, you know, how it's characterized by the, the three Bs. Mm-hmm. Beatles, like, Bond, Batman. Beatles, Bond, and Batman, exactly. So, you know, obviously on our show we have talked extensively, you know, about Batman. Um, tonight we are going to talk about the Beatles and, you know, and maybe a, a tiny little smidge of, uh, of James Bond, you know, one of the... Uh, uh, the characters we're looking at tonight kind of has elements of that whole sort of like, you know, late 60s spy craze. Nice. Yeah, which uh, you would be eminently familiar with, you know, because I made you sit down and watch, you know, 101 different, you know, Dirk Bogard, you know, mm. <laughs> right? Poor cow. Poor cow, right. It was a, a Terrence Stamp or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so just for the benefit of our listeners, you know, I'm a huge uh, cinema buff and I, I went through this whole, you know, craze watching all these, these different, like I say, you know, late 60s, you know, uh, uh, angry young man type films or whatever and subjected Melanie to them. Um, but those <laughs> were part of, an, you know, the overall British invasion. You know, all those yeah. films were coming over to America, um, but so too was the music. And all of that, you know, obviously started, you know, with the arrival of the Beatles in uh, in February of 1964. You know, the first time they appeared on the uh, on the Ed Sullivan show. Um, Just about three months after my parents got married. Well, I was going to say, so, you know, uh, you know, a little bit of background. Melanie's parents got married the uh, the week after JFK was shot. Mm-hmm. And so you would well imagine, you know, America on the whole... Was in mourning. Well, exactly, you know, for, for a long time or whatever. And they sort of cite, you know, in, in 2020 hindsight, you know, the event that sort of brought America out of that funk was the arrival of the Beatles. All of a sudden, there was this young, exciting thing, you know, that everyone in the country saw, you know, because at the time, you know, you, you would all watch the same TV shows. Uh-huh. You know, they sat down and, you know, Ed Sullivan in, in February of 1964 debuted these four mop tops and America just went wild. You know, it became, as, you know, the phrase is known, Beatlemania. You know, just, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, in a matter of months, they were everywhere. Like, you know, um, obviously, you know, certainly their albums, you know, but their singles too were just flying off the shelves. And obviously on the heels of that, you know, anytime there's these sort of crazes, you know, what's the one thing that, that follows in its wake? You know, merchandising, mm-hmm. right? So as you would, I imagine, have seen in a hundred different antique stores that we've gone to, you know. Lunchboxes. Well, I was going to say, yeah, Beatles <laughs> merchandise, you know, followed in the wake of Beatlemania, far outpaced, you know, the Batman stuff. Like, you know, Batman took by storm, obviously, there was a hundred and one different toys or whatever. Well, there was a thousand and one different, like, Beatles things, you know, <laughs> cool. whether it was like, you know... Uh, as you said, lunch boxes or, you know, like beetle wigs they sold, you know, uh, little dolls and bobbleheads and, you know, uh, coloring books, cartoons, like anything you can imagine beetle related was out there, you know, and, and obviously, you know, the content of our show. 
Comic books. Comic books, exactly. Right um, right from the get-go, you know, comic books, you know, jumped all over this. You know, and, and DC, you know, to their credit, was actually first this time. You know, <laughs> they, they were copying somebody else. Um, they had uh, a, and, and not an appearance of the Beatles per se, but, you know, a sort of like takeoff on it. In uh, September of 1964, there was an issue of, uh, of Jimmy Olsen, you know, Superman's pal mm-hmm. Jimmy Olsen. Um, called the uh, the redheaded beetle of 1000 BC, hmm. and uh, it is so ridiculous. It's one of those like Mort Weisinger tales, you know, like just that are, that are so completely out there. It's basically uh, starts off, you know, Jimmy Olsen is in his little like pad or whatever, and he's like he's you know bopping along listening to the Beatles, and he's wearing a redheaded Beatles wig. You know, he's like, oh, it makes me relax when I listen to the Beatles to put on this wig or whatever. Okay. Yeah, and so uh, I don't know through a series of events, you know, this sort of like criminal who's a time traveler or whatever takes him back to like biblical times and he's like he's stranded there and the time machine breaks and you know whatever he meets this this uh, like tough guy there who's going to try to help him or whatever um, but in order to um, you know survive while he's there he's got to make you know a little bit of money um, so what he decides to do is manufacture Beatles wigs back in biblical times huh. okay <laughs> and so he starts like selling them or whatever because what happens I'm, I'm giving this short shrift which it deserves by the way um, <laughs> but he uh, he starts like uh, entertaining people on the street by like playing a little drum and then like people see him you know with his, his you know he's still got his redheaded Beatle wig uh-huh. and so he starts making these and people want to emulate him blah 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 long story short he starts Beatlemania you know 6,000 years before the real thing or whatever oh, wow yeah yeah and then it turns out the dude is helping him is like Samson it's just it's a whole like ridiculous okay. thing yeah, yeah. or whatever. But anyway, that's DC's you know quote unquote claim to fame around like Beatles comics. You know? They were first, um, but like I say, other companies you know jumped all over this. You know, uh, Marvel had a little thing where like the uh, uh, Ben Grimm's girlfriend you know meets the Beatles, and then there was another thing you know. Uh, um, you know, Charlton Comics, I think, had a couple things going on. Uh, at DC themselves, they had their own uh, fab foursome, so to speak, you know, the uh, the Teen Titans. We haven't uh, gotten into any of that on this show, but we've seen some of the advertisements, you know, basically yeah. Robin and his little, you know, cadre of teen heroes or whatever. We're sort of known colloquially as, you know, the fab foursome. And within the early issues of that comic, they would uh, actually, like... Um, pen pal with the Beatles you know they would write back and forth and get oh, like cute. autograph photos of each other yeah it was a uh, you know kind of like goofy or whatever but yeah cute in a way um the metal men I've mentioned before you know uh-huh. sort of like you know weird uh type robot comic uh they too meet the Beatles so like I say you know basically everywhere you can imagine the Beatles popping up they did um which is kind of ironic really because at this point in their career you know we're talking like you know 65 into you know 66 um, that's kind of when they, as a band, started getting a little bit away from the mainstream. You know, they had already done, you know, Rubber Soul, which was, you know, kind of a little more, you know, like jazz infused, like, you know, Baby Can Drive My Car, that type stuff. Um, but coming up, you know, was uh, Revolver, which, uh, you know, if you ever listen to it, is really sort of more of like a, a counterculture type album. You know, there's a lot of songs on there which are references, you know, to like, you know, drug use and stuff like that. Mm. You know, Dr. Robert, I guess, you know, is about, you know, the, the guy used to supply the Beatles with pills and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And uh, what, like, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows or She Said, She Said. I, I think one of those are like, you know, sort of like a, inspired by like an acid trip. I think John Lennon took huh. or something like that. Um, Yellow Submarine, you know, with a sort of like, you know, day glow imagery, you know. Yeah, yeah. So really, like I say, you know, not the, the teen fair that, you know, the Beatles have been pumping out to that point. 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, like I say, it's sort of ironic, you know, at, at this point or whatever that, uh, you know, comics should be all over that. Mm-hmm. Even such like, you know, goofy things, you know, like you want to talk about like not counterculture at all. The Beatles also appeared in Jerry Lewis and Bob Hope. Right. Oh. <laughs> you know? So like, you know, about as far away from like, you know, non-mainstream as you can get, you know, basically the, uh, the like older generations, you know, type mm-hmm. entertainers. And, uh, it was with that in mind that DC decided, you know, maybe now the time is ripe, you know, for a, uh, a younger generation, you know, humor mag, you know, something like, like I say, in the sort of, you know, gag tradition of, you know, Bob Hope and Jerry Lewis, but like I say, sort of like appealing to that younger generation. And that, you know, is the first strip that we're going to take a look at tonight. Um, something we've referenced, you know, a couple times on our show, you know, sort of teased it out a little bit. Um, Swing with Scooter, mm, okay. the, uh, the creation of uh, one Jack Miller, uh, who we would have seen, you know, from the uh, the Dead Man stories, right? He was both the uh, the editor and the initial scripter, mm-hmm. and uh, and a woman writer um, by the name of uh, Barbara Freelander, and uh, you know, and these two individuals, you know, we'll see as we go on, their sort of stories sort of like intertwine, you know, both in the history of this character and uh, in a follow-on magazine that we're going to take a look at tonight. Um, something else we've teased out here, you know, uh, Teen Beat slash Teen Beam. I remember that one. They were asking about the establishment in the in a quiz. The establishment, yes. Yeah. Where, where you're copping out on your the, the clothes you wear or whatever, you know, <laughs> your parents giving you a hard time. Um, yeah, so that, that too, you know, as we'll see, is also a, uh, you know, a Jack Miller, Barbara Freelander joint. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so what I want to do actually, you know, then to, uh, uh, kick this off then is just take a look, you know, at the, at the bios of these two, okay. you know, we have, um, already read, you know, a couple stories of Jack Miller's or whatever. So I think, you know, now would be the appropriate time to, uh, dig into his background, uh, which unfortunately, you know, is kind of scant, you know, there's not that much, you know, autobiographical information about him out there, you know, either, um, you know, from his own, you know, entries that, that you can find, you know, like on, on wikis and stuff like that, or even like, you know, interviews that, that other people have written about him. Um, long story short, you know, the most, uh, you know, I've been able to find about, you know, the most sort of like telling fact, um, you know, comes from the uh, the DC Wikia, um, you know, which says that, uh, that Jacob, you know, his real name, mm-hmm. Jack Miller, um, was just a huge Anglophile. You know, basically he was just obsessed with, with all things English. Hmm. Um, yeah, they said... Uh, uh, like, let me just go ahead and read this. It says that uh, Jack Miller uh, worked mostly from his apartment, and even there he'd be found in an expensive custom-made suit, white shirt, jeweled cufflinks, and silk tie. He was an Anglophile who smoked English cigarettes, English pipe tobacco, owned a Jaguar, and subscribed to Punch, which is the uh, the old-style um, joke magazine, you know, going back to, like, the 1800s, uh-huh. uh, coming out of England. Yeah, so, oh. yeah, like, almost like a prototypical comic book, but, but like I say, very, very sort of, like, you know, traditional English mag, you know, huh. Jack Miller, you know, certainly styled himself, you know, in that fashion. Neat. Um, so his, uh, like I say, his early life and, and you know, and history... Can't find anything about it. Don't know where he was born. Don't know, you know, where he grew up, any siblings, whatever. You know, the the first sign I can find from him, you know, basically is just tracking down through, like, you know, comics.org, you know, just when he started working in comics. Oh my God, when does, like, how does that happen? You, I mean, I mean, maybe he's just a private individual, you know, like maybe, you know, he didn't have, you know, a lot of extended family or something, or maybe just like, you know, uh, just, you know, maybe didn't drop, you know, his, his own, like, you know, personal biography or something, you know, to be hmm. put in the back of books. No idea, you know, but somehow it's just is lost to the annals of history. Um, so what we have to rely on, as I say, then is just, you know, his sort of, uh, you know, credits that, that you know, are, are listed. Um, so it appears that he first came to D.C. In, uh, in 1942 
and uh, at that time, I guess, was mostly responsible not for writing stories per se, but um, text features. Like, um, they don't really have these in, in modern comics, but back in the day, you would go through, like, you know, let's say a Spectre story, and then, like, you know, two pages beyond that would be a Dr. Fate story, but then in between, there would be, like, a two-page, you know, sort of, like, written story, maybe with just, like, an illustration or two. You know, and like a short story, like a short story, exactly. Yeah, okay. and uh, and Jack Miller, you know, used to write a lot of those. You know, all throughout the the forties, um, going into like fifties and sixties. You know, looking at his credits, he continued writing them, but now they were no longer those you know full page short stories. They were more the sort of like fact features that we see like in Strange Adventures, like. Um, you know, uh, there was one about uh, great enemies throughout history. Like, you know, remember, like, there was, like, you know, uh, Saladin and, you know, who he fought. And then there, because I referenced the fact that they they looked at uh, two boxers, Joe Lewis and, you know, Ingmar Johansson as being these great enemies or something. Uh-huh. Anyway, Jack Miller would be responsible for writing those text be- features, you know, hmm. which I guess sort of preceded letter pages in, in a lot of these magazines. You know, that was just before they started letting, like, reader letters go out. You right, know? okay. So he uh, he did that, I guess, for about uh, five years, you know, right to the, to the end of the 40s, um, before he broke into actual, you know, comic script writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then uh, mostly for the, uh, the, the family of heroes that I guess fell under the editorial um, purview of a fellow by the name of uh, Whitney Ellsworth, who... Um, We've mentioned a couple times, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. He's the guy who went out to Hollywood and brokered all those deals with Bob Hope, Jerry Lewis, and uh-huh. all that. Yeah. So um, at the time, you know, Whitney Ellsworth um, oversaw all the Superman magazines, you know, with his editorial assistant, Mort Weisinger. Oh. Right? <laughs> so you connect the dots. Yeah. yeah eventually he's going to take over. Um, so, yeah. So uh, in the, some of the backups in those features were um, things that Mort had created, you know, Johnny Quick, uh, Aquaman. And um, and so Jack Miller, you know, took over the uh, the writing duties of, uh, of both of those characters um, when they were backups in, uh, I believe, Adventure Comics. I think those two plus Green Arrow, and I want to say maybe the uh, the Shining Knight were sort of like rotating backup features there. Um, but like I say, yeah, Jack Miller wrote both of those. And then additionally, you know, um, apart from Adventure Comics, um, you know, obviously some other Superman titles would be Superman itself, um, but also Action Comics. And, uh, and that's where uh, Jack Miller um, started writing the character. They'd probably most be associated with, you know, for I think for the greatest duration. Um, that's a character by the name of uh, Congo Bill, <laughs> which, uh, hmm. yeah, I'm, it's a... Uh, I'm not sure how to describe this to you because it's it's actually two different type features. Like initially, it started I think back in the um, '40s. I'm not sure whether it was, I don't think it was in Action Comics number one, but very very early on, um, Congo Bill started as like a jungle type hero, okay. like kind of like you know Jungle Jim or something you know out there you know uh, adventures with like gorillas and lions and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at a certain point in the 1950s, they sort of like reinvented him as uh, almost a superhero. He comes into contact with this uh, medallion or like amulet or something that allows him to swap brains with this like gigantic golden gorilla okay neat yeah yeah it's just he finds out in the jungle or whatever and so he you know in times of you know peril or crime or whatever will swap brains and then go fight crime as this gorilla and then like you know and then come back to his body and then occasionally you know Congo, that'd be interesting yeah yeah but occasionally Congo Bill himself will go wild with the gorilla's brains like this dude just like <laughs> yeah so anyway yeah Jack Miller you know wrote that um, beginning in 1952 and uh, all the way through 1959 so like I say you know kind of a, a, a good run yeah a seven year run on, on that character character 
Um, so that would bring us then up to the uh, the 1960s and, you know, the beginning, I guess, of the, uh, you know, sort of Julia Schwartz ushered in, you know, sci-fi era, you know, mm-hmm. the Adam Strange, Captain Comet type thing. And the uh, and the two big characters of that genre, you know, that Jack Miller worked on were um, a sort of remnant, I guess, of the uh, 1940s named uh, Tommy Tomorrow. Originally, that name was used for a character in uh, something called uh, Real Fact Comics. Like, you know, Tommy Tomorrow would be a uh, a dude, I guess, that they, like a little kid or teenager that they would tell, like, you know, in the future, you know, we're going to have flying cars. And Tommy Tomorrow's like, wow, that's amazing, or whatever. <laughs> um, but they, I think they sort of recycled that name for a sci-fi specific character. Like, the Tommy Tomorrow that I know is a, uh, like sort of spaceman from the 21st century. Like That's funny. When you said Tommy Tomorrow, I could in my mind I was envisioning like a silver spacesuit or something. Yeah, well, it's very clear he wears a purple spacesuit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, very much like sort of, you know, square-jawed, you know, heroic guy with a uh-huh. la- with a laser gun, of course, you know, yeah. whatever. So, yeah, so uh, Jack Miller worked on that. And then the second thing, probably, you know, more well-known, I think, is a character by the name of uh, Rip Hunter, uh, Time Master. He, uh, you know, invents a, a time not bubble, the time bubbles legion. I don't know what it's called, like a time cube or something. No, what the heck's the? I forget what Rip Hunter's time machine is called. Anyway, okay. he invents a time machine. Right. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and he and his little crew or whatever, you know, travel back, you know, to you know times of dinosaurs or King Arthur, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, and that uh, you know sort of a little bit more long lasting. Um, yeah, he wrote the uh, the tryouts, I believe, in Showcase, and then uh, and then a couple issues of uh, Rip Hunter's uh, solo title. Um, in addition to that, um, you know, he also wrote for a couple titles that you and I would be uh, fairly familiar with, um, that being uh, House of Mystery and House of Secrets. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah, so uh, House of uh, Mystery, he um, actually, so the character he wrote in House of Mystery, he actually started in Detective Comics, that being, uh, you know, John Jones, the... Uh, Martian Manhunter. Martian Manhunter, exactly. And, uh, and the one he wrote in House of Secrets. Um, dun, dun, Mark Merlin? Mark Merlin, yes. How would you know that? <laughs> well, I remember. Yeah, well, because most of the stories we read um, kind of had like a question mark around them being like Arnold Drake or Bob Haney. Um, but a second source that I was looking at, um, uh, the uh, DC Indexes site, I think I might have mentioned on the show over time from, t- from time to time, credits some of those same stories possibly to Jack Miller. So like, for instance, you know... Um, uh, Doctor Seven. Do you remember that story we read? Yes. Yeah. Um, so that, like I say, you know, had a question mark on comics.org that it might be Arnold Drake. Uh, like I say, DC Indexes has a question mark. It might be Jack Miller. So. Oh, know. so yeah. So we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. So, uh, so that then takes him to uh, the mid '60s. Um, actually, June of 1964, um, when a shifting, you know, editorial crew um, sort of, you know, opened a door for Jack Miller, and he got kicked upstairs. Uh, to become the editor of a very distinct genre, which, you know, maybe a little bit non-intuitive given the uh, the history of, uh, you know, his career up to that point. Uh, he suddenly became the uh, overall editor for DC Comics' romance line. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, up until that point, it um, had for a long time been overseen by a woman uh, by the name of uh, Phyllis Reed, um, but I think at a certain point she took a job um, in magazines. I want to say she she left DC under her own steam, uh-huh. and um, and for a time they were taken over by a fellow uh, Larry Nadel, who we've mentioned before in the yeah. show. Um, but he uh, actually died in office, if you want to say, like you know, like as the editor, he actually I believe he had a heart attack and, and passed away. You know, uh, hopefully at home. Um, but like in his fifties, though, I think you know oh. he had a very young age. 
Um, but like I say, you know, that loss, you know, turned out to be the opportunity for Jack Miller um, because he inherited all those titles. And uh, <laughs> mm. I'm going to read these titles to you and, okay. and, and see, you know, maybe if, if you notice a theme here. So suddenly, you know, Jack Miller was the editor of uh, Falling in Love, Girls Love Stories, Young Love, Young Romance, Girls Romance, Secret Hearts, and Heartthrobs. <laughs> is, is the theme love? And... <laughs> it might be love and, and heart and, and young. And, and girls. <laughs> and girls, exactly. <laughs> like, basically, these magazines were completely, like, interchangeable with each other. You know, so much to the point that uh, a lot of the writers for these weren't even professional comics writers. Like, you know, if you were on staff at DC and you knew somebody who's like, hey, I'd like to write a comic, they're like, you know what, write a romance comic, you know? And uh, they'd submit these stories or whatever, so like, you know, your brother-in-law or like, you know, your mailman or whatever could get a could story. Could be writing. Could be writing for DC Comics, you know, Did they use romance titles. Yeah, probably. Yeah, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was not a very, you know, respected line. But, you know, like I say, an opportunity for uh, uh, Jack Miller and... Uh, in particular, you know, an opportunity that I, I think would, you know, sort of dictate the course of the rest of his life because in addition to, uh, you know, inheriting this uh, this line of titles, he also inherited a certain editorial assistant, uh, a young woman by the name of Barbara Freelander. And, uh, and if you think I have next to no, you know, biographical information on Jack Miller, I have even less on Miss Freelander. <laughs> yeah, she, uh, like, honestly, the only thing I know about her whatsoever is, uh, you know, that she, uh, you know, prior to this point had been doing some writing, you know, for the romance titles mm -hmm. um, under a couple pseudonyms. I guess, um, you know, people in this industry would, you know, like change their name. Um, she wrote under the names of uh, Barbara Miles and then also uh, Jill Taylor. And I'm, I'm sure like, you know, 10 different other names or whatever mm -hmm. that are just you know, sort of lost to, you know, the annals of history. Um, but like I say, in very short order, you know, she became the, the editorial assistant to Jack Miller. And I guess, you know, maybe, you know, inspired or whatever by, you know, some of the titles that they were working on, uh, the two of them, you know, fell in love, uh, which would be a wonderful thing, if not for the fact that Jack Miller uh, also had a wife and two children. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, so I, uh, you know... I don't want to be, you know, slinging mud, you know, 50 years after the fact or whatever, you know, but it was, yeah. it's no great secret that, you know, uh, that Jack Miller and Barbara Freelander, you know, had a, uh, you know, sort of a well-known affair and, you know, um, as we'll see, you know, at the sort of tail end of our episode, you know, that might have, you know, to a, uh, you know, a small extent, you know, maybe been their, their uh, professional undoing. Um, but let us save tragedy, you know, for later in the show. Right now, let us uh, deal in, instead with their triumphs, you know, and the uh, the, the initial triumph, you know, that we're going to take a look at is their uh, their joint creation, uh, along with a, an artist that uh, Jack Miller had worked on a, a humor title um, called The Inferior Five, um, which. Uh, we may take a look at, um, there's actually a, a kind of a funny story that sort of deals with the behind the scenes shenanigans in the DC editorial offices. Um, so I think before too long, we might take a uh, quick peek at uh, Inferior 5. Um, but, cool. the, uh, but the artist, you know, that Jack Miller oversaw on that title was a fellow by the name of uh, Joe Orlando, who later on in our show is going to become a huge presence. He uh, will take over all the, uh, um, the sort of like horror titles. Uh, House of Secrets, The Revival, House of Mystery, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, the three of them, you know, Jack Miller, Barbara Freelander, and Joe Orlando, are responsible for our first topic tonight, uh, Swing with Scooter. 
Um, so Scooter, you know, as uh, we've mentioned before, you know, is sort of falls, you know, squarely into that, like, you know, teen humor category, you know, sort of like, you know, Archie-based thing, you know, which DC, you know, has had several in the past. You know, I think when we did our Sheldon Mayer episode, you know, we mentioned, like, you know, Leave it to Binky and, like, you know, <laughs> Everything Happens to Harvey. But those, uh, those titles had, you know, long since gone defunct. Um, there actually is going to be a revival of, uh, you know, Binky in, in just a couple years with DC, you know, you know after the success of Scooter. Um, but Scooter, you know, differs, you know, a little bit from your traditional, um, you know, teen humor thing in that, you know, it's, as I mentioned at the forefront, it's sort of a hybrid, I guess, you know, of that Archie-inspired teen humor with the whole concept of Beatlemania. Ah. Um, Scooter as a character, and matter of fact, now, now I think it's the appropriate time to go ahead and just, you know, pull up the uh, the first cover here. Um, so this is uh, Swing with Scooter, number one, um, from uh, from June of 1966. It says July, but actually it's uh, one of those bi-monthly titles. I think it's like June, July okay. of 66. And uh, and you see right off the bat, you know, he totally has the sort of, you know, beetle look about him, right? Yeah. You know, he's got the... Uh, Chelsea you know, boots. Yeah, but what are those called? The, like Cuban toed Chelsea boots, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, which, you know, the Beatles were known for. And the sort of like, you know... Uh, uh, Tudor collar type thing and the whole mop top. His his look actually he's based specifically on uh, on Paul McCartney. You know the uh, the Beatles. You know when they first came out were sort of like uh, pigeonholed into types. Uh-huh. You know like John Lennon I guess was the you know the uh, the smart one and you know George Harrison was the quiet one. Uh, Ringo Starr I think was the funny one and Paul McCartney was quote unquote the cute one. You know it's funny because like clearly the guy on the cover is cute, but I've never really thought of Paul McCartney as cute. Paul McCartney is cute. Yeah, well I mean we know sort of like, you know, older Paul McCartney, you know, from the 80s. But no, like in in the 60s or whatever when he was like, you know, still a teenager or whatever, he definitely sort of had like the clean-faced look, you know, mm-hmm. just you know sort of like it's kind of what the the girls went for. Um, and so, for the benefit of our listeners, you know, what we see here on the cover is, uh, you know, this Paul McCartney-inspired dude, you know, guitar slung across his back, you know, uh, riding up on, on his Vespa, you know. I guess uh-huh. that's, you know, where the name also, you know, Scooter would come from, very yes. much, you know, popular in, in the mod days. And he's sort of surrounded by little headshots, I guess, of all the supporting cast. And you can almost see, you know, there's like a, uh, like almost a one-to-one uh, ratio um, with regard to, you know, Archie characters with these um, you see to the uh, his upper left, you know, two girls, Penny and Cookie, the sort of blonde and brunette. Yeah. Um, so basically, you know, sort of like Betty and Veronica. Right. Right, exactly. This guy to the right, uh, Sylvester, sort of beatnik looking guy, and he's got the little like, you know, uh, Maynard Krebs, you know, uh, goatee type thing. He's like basically the equivalent to Jughead. Um, you know, kind of like how Jughead's always like obsessed with food. This guy's always obsessed with like cash. Well, then who's the guy on the bottom? The bottom, this guy here. I thought he was Jughead. No, so this guy is uh, Kenny, and and so read what he's saying. He's saying that Fink's got all my chicks tuned into his frequency. So he's basically the Reggie equivalent. Like he's oh yeah yeah he's Scooter's rival. Um, this girl, you know, right off the uh, Scooter's you know right foot is uh, Cynthia. And she's initially introduced as a, a UK girl who, um, you know, comes over with Scooter and, and all the girls are jealous because they think, you know, oh, that's obviously got to be his, like, you know, mod girlfriend. Turns out it's actually his little sister. Ah. <laughs> so, and her look, um, kind of obscure, actually, but her name is a bit of a, a Romana Clay. Uh, Cynthia it actually uh, looks exactly like uh, Cynthia Lennon, who was John Lennon's first wife prior to Yoko Ono. Huh. So, yeah, kind of another little Beatles connection. You know who else she looks like? Who's that? Thelma from Scooby-Doo. Velma? Velma? Yeah. Is yeah. it Velma? Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, she does. But she has that sort of like, yeah, nerd girl thing, you know, with the, the round glasses and such. 
And then, uh, and then the reason, you know, we even like it even occurred to me to, to cover this at all is actually this other character here, uh, Malibu. And uh, you wouldn't get it from, you know, the, this cover, whatever it says, you know, I'll tell you what I think of that English import. He's a, he's a, you know, censored <laughs> little tag across. Um, but as I say, the, code. yeah, yeah. But the, uh, the reason, you know, that I decided to look at Scooter is because we want to be comprehensive in all things magic and supernatural. Okay. And there are overtures, you know, with this character that Malibu might be a vampire. <laughs> like, what do you mean might be? Well, do they like, not come out and say it? Yeah, they do not come out and say it. But like, he's always like doing weird things, like hanging out in graveyards and like you know, uh, you know, there's like bat imagery or whatever. And I think his ears are kind of have a little like pointed thing. It's a, <laughs> it's a very you know. And so honestly, like um, he looks angry. Yeah, this character, um, his you know his facial look or whatever is. Uh, I said at the beginning of the show we're going to cover Beatles and maybe a smidge and a Bond. Uh-huh. Here's where the smidge and Bond comes in. Um, so Malibu's look, and matter of fact, let me go ahead and, and crack open the cover because maybe we'll get a better shot here. Um, let's see. Yeah, okay. Actually, yeah, you can see it. So on the, the second page, you know, once again, we're reintroduced to all those people we saw on the cover. And yeah, there you see the shot of Malibu. He's like surrounded by bats with like a dark sky. Yeah. It says the original uh, Rage from Finksville. Um, but the way he's dressed and specifically, you know, his facial, you know, structure or whatever is evocative of the actor, um... David McCallum, who um, you probably know these days uh, from uh, NCIS, he plays Ducky. Ducky. Okay, you do know, yeah. But back in the day, he was a very popular uh, English actor. Uh, we've seen him probably in uh, The Great Escape, mm-hmm. right? Um, but more importantly, he uh, came to great renown as being um, the Russian agent on The Man from Uncle, uh, Ilya Kuryakin. Oh. Yeah, yeah. He uh, at the time he was, he was kind of like a um, uh, what do they call it, like. A, Teen Idol, you know, like, yeah, you see, he wasn't a teen, but I'm saying all the girls were like, oh, he's so cute. Kind of like um, Pavel Chekhov, you know, from, oh, from okay. Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that type of thing. Um, because he was, like, young and he had cool hair and he was, like, hip and whatever. And his signature thing was he always wore this white trench coat that Malibu's wearing. Uh-huh. So Malibu is almost like a fusion, I guess you'd say, of all these different, like, you know, things that were popular, really. So, A, he's associated with Beatlemania by association with Scooter. He is associated with the James Bond craze and, you know, the things that came out of that, like, you know, I Spy and Man from U.N.C.L.E. And then also the monster craze. Mm-hmm. So it's like they crushed everything that was, like, popular with kids, like, into one character. And, uh, you know, and then that's our, our man Malibu. Did the kids like him? Did the kids like this character? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, I, I assume that, you know, kids liked... Uh, you know, the Scooter Mag to begin with, but, you know, as far as a breakdown is, you know, what was popular, I have no idea. Um, but, uh, so I don't know necessarily that we want to go through this entire magazine, but um, I did want to kind of flip through. So long story short, I'll give you that the high-level overview. Oh, yeah, he does look like Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah, totally there. Um, so Scooter basically is a uh, an English, you know, uh, musician who, you know, similar to, you know, uh, like I said, the Beatles or whatever, was all the rage, but he decided it was too much, and he kind of wanted to, like, get away from it for a while. Mm-hmm. So he went to this, like, small suburban town and just, like, you know, settled in, went to high school, that type thing. Um, and so everybody's crazy about him. You see all the girls screaming and stuff. I was just stuff. looking at that. Yeah, and so that's kind of a, uh, you know, he's like, oh, you know, oh, I'm just, I'm just Scooter, just a normal guy, but, you know. Like... Is, for, for the audience, we're, uh, we're looking at a house surrounded by a, a bunch of teenagers, mostly female. Yeah, yeah. So, but, um, so, oh yeah, look, there's a shot of Malibu, he totally looks like Kiriak in there. He does. Yeah, so. Not quite so strange looking there. <laughs> so, but the first thing I wanted to pause on, actually, is the, um, 
not letters page, I guess this will become the letters page, but uh, initially it's just a text page, and it's called uh, Scooter Scoops. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to point this out is uh, because as we get into the second half of our show, you know, the Teen Beat, Team Beam, uh -huh. um, that too is a collaboration of uh, Jack Miller and Robert Friedlander, um, but we see the origins of it sort of in this, like, Scooter Scoops column. Um, basically what it is is uh, sort of like, you know, Tiger Beat type inspired, like, peek behind the scenes of, like, you know, the bands of the day. You know, we see, you know, she's referencing the Beatles, Rolling Stones, uh, Manfred Mann, you know, Freddie and the Dreamers, and basically given like a little bit of, you know, behind the scenes stuff of them, like, you know, like, hey kids, you know, what's, uh, you know, Herman's Hermits up like to? Gossip. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then additionally, here's a, here's a cool flash. Ah. Is David McCallum, our man from Uncle, was actually the first one to wear his hair in the famous Beatles fashion. So yeah, they're... Really? <laughs> is that true? I don't know. <laughs> it's it's in, it's in print. It's so. in print. It must be true. <laughs> So let's see. What do they say about McCallum? He was born in Scotland, attended college in London. Uh, David drives one of the grooviest cars going, a Jaguar. Oh, which, uh, so does Jack Miller. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> so, you know, maybe Barbara's like, oh, it is a groovy car. <laughs> so, all right. Let's see what else we got. Um, just flipping through, flipping through. Um, oh, I wanted to pause here. Um, just internally, you know, an advertisement for the Inferior Five. You know, we mentioned the collaboration of... Uh, um, uh, Joe Orlando, you know, who uh, you know, is doing the art on this. This is where Jack Miller first would have, uh, you know, met him. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> an ad for Scooter in Scooter. <laughs> Strange. That is weird. Yeah. yeah. Forsooth. <laughs> From Will Shakespeare's pad, alack, there came the swinging cat. Egad, he digged us so, this lad. Splud were now his habitat. Gadzooks, those kooks at DC boast. Odd bodkins, Scooter's strictly boss. Ye faith, his new mag is the most. How now, our gain is England's loss. <laughs> Text by Jack Miller. <laughs> uh, what else? What else? Um, Cookies Tiger Bait. I, I another um, you know text feature in here. Um, wanted to point this out. Uh, two reasons. Number one, um, Tiger Bait. Yeah. Tiger Beat. Tiger Beat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, and what this is basically is uh, you know fashion and makeup tips you know from the character Cookie. Um, but really, it's fashion and makeup tips from Barbara Freelander, who would write very, very similar type things, you know, in all the romance comics, you know. So this is a, a holdover, you know, from her romance days. Um, so, yeah. So that is, like I say, a high-level overview of Scooter number one. Uh, I do want to go into Scooter number two, uh, just to point out one little thing here as we... Uh, flip open the uh, the second issue um, from August of 66 and and yeah and here's what I wanted to point out basically on the uh, uh, opening splash you know you have a little uh, credit box and it says you know art by J. Orlando and M. Esposito uh, Mike Esposito we would have seen in the mm -hmm. uh, Spectre Brave and the Bold um, but script by B.F. and J.M. so Barbara Freelander Jack Miller yeah okay so only initials? Well, so, uh, you know, maybe two things going on. Like, number one, um, you know, probably they didn't want to, you know, credit a, a woman, you know, as being a writer. Maybe they thought that would be off-putting to, you know, kids of the or little boys of the day, maybe, or whatever. Um, but secondarily, it's also kind of like, almost like... A heart? I, I was about yeah. to like, like carved <laughs> in a tree, like, you know, BF loves JM or something like that. That's so funny. Um, so, yeah, we're not going to go through this one. Um, number three. Three actually does have a little bit of Malibu in it, so I want to you know quickly look at that. 
Um, yeah, so uh, so similar to Archie, and uh, I think we even mentioned with regard to Neil Adams how uh, Archie would have the main stories, but then they would have like little uh, you know joke pages or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, so too did Scooter, and they would like you know focus on uh, you know one of the individual characters. Uh, so in number three from October of '66, uh, we have a Malibu, you know, the Rage from Finksville gag page. Is, uh, so we see two little boys, and uh, you know they're on the street, you know, uh, hearing a, a tapping coming from around the corner. Um, oh, because they're they're gonna plan on scaring somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they they got little like you know monster masks or whatever. They're like, here comes someone now. It's here, tap tap tap. Quick, put on these monster masks. Tap tap tap. That guy looks like Stanley Dover, doesn't he? <laughs> a little yeah. Bit. Yeah. Ha ha! We'll scare the daylight out of him. Says the boy, putting on his little purple monster mask. How do I look? Gruesome, says the other boy. How about me? Ginchy. Ginchy? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Nice. So tap, tap, tap. As we, uh, you know, see coming around the corner is Malibu in his Ilya Kuryakin jacket. Tap, tap, tap. And as he rounds the corner and comes face to face with the boys in the mask, they're like, ah! And they're scared by him and just go, you know, screeching off or whatever. So... He looks like a Spock vampire there. Right, because his little ears are kind of pointy. But, so this is what I'm saying. Okay, so this is the first overture to something being, you know, somewhat not quite right with Malibu. These yeah. little boys see through the, uh, you know, sort of illusion or whatever and like yeah. are, are scared of him. So you kind of got to look at it a little bit, you know, squinty-eyed, but, you know, it, it's there if you want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think what I want to do from this point is maybe just give a, a quick overview of uh, some of the covers um, just to sort of, like, capture the, uh, the spirit of the times. Um, we'd seen earlier, you know, in... Uh, Jerry Lewis and Bob Hope, how, you know, at a certain point the jokes were, you know, sort of uh, overtaken by the monster craze. Yeah. Um, so too with Scooter. You know, we look at Scooter number four and there's some sort of weird alien creature. Right. Um, you know, some uh, uh, pirate ship thing in number five, a headless guy in number six. Right. Uh, Is so he carrying gonna... his head? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like a Hamlet type thing, you know, like the, you know, last poor Yorick. Um, number eight, and this is kind of evocative to me of Captain of the Cat Curse, the old Mark Merlin story. <laughs> you know, big, like, oversized cat. Yeah. Um, but then number nine, you go right out and there's a full-on monster story. You know, we see our, our teens, you know, in, in the cauldron, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, captured by this sort of Igor-looking dude. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's go forward a couple issues um, to number 11, which is the final um, Jack Miller-edited you know, uh, issue of Scooter. This would have been from uh, February of 68, so actually catching up to our chronology. Mm-hmm. And uh, and from this point, um, Scooter is going to be edited by um, the man who up to this point had been the artist, uh, Joe Orlando, is actually going to take over the editing of it. And um, I went, real quick, before we delve into uh, number 11, uh-huh. I want to put uh, 11 and 12 side by side and see if you can tell me what jumps out as a significant, you know, difference between the two. Well, the title. The the title bar, yeah. exactly. Right. Up to this point we've the had font. this sort yeah, yeah. We've had this sort of like stylized, you know, um uh, I guess action, sh- you know, shot of the scooter logo. You know, there's scooter on his scooter. You know, sort of zipping up the S or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's sort of like you know splayed out. In the very next one, we have this like you know blue and red almost bubble letter, um, which is almost a direct font lift. From Archie. Archie, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, I've seen the covers. Yeah, so I think when Joe Orlando took over, they're like, you know, we need to, to bump up sales. He's like, well, let's just make it look like Archie. Yeah. <laughs> We're already using sell. the characters. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, but before we get to that point, like I say, let's uh, crack open number 11, uh, just for another little uh, Malibu sequence here. Um, because contained therein is a story called I Was a Teenage Teenager, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, is basically the story of, uh, of this girl here, um, 
Josie. <laughs> yeah, it looks a lot like yeah, Josie from Josie. Oh no, no, she doesn't look like Josie from Josie's Pussycat. She looks like uh, Melody, the uh, yeah. yeah, the other girl. Um, but what she is, she's a uh, sort of Hollywood star here named uh, Dolores Del Knight, who I guess comes to you know Scooter's you know suburban town uh, to look for extras to be in her movie. And um, so she's going through the uh, the different teens or whatever, and, and Malibu, you know, strikes a sort of like werewolf pose or whatever. And she goes, hmm, you look like a natural for the graveyard scene. So, <laughs> so He looks really happy about that. Yeah, but look at his teeth, right? <laughs> yeah. He's almost got like a little like fangs going on Probably there. Probably just needs braces. So... Um, so we're going to flip forward. So long story short, just to synopsize, um, she hits upon Scooter as being, you know, uh, the handsomest or whatever and possibly a leading man. Uh, so she casts him in the role as the boyfriend. And uh, so we cut, you know, a couple pages later to the first day of shooting and they're doing the graveyard scene and like Scooter's walking, you know, hand in hand with her. And he's like, now that we're going steady, I feel it fair to warn you that a vampire has been seen in the graveyard. Ha ha ha, says uh uh, Dolores, I don't believe in vampires. There's no such thing as as Malibu pops out from behind a graveyard. She's like, ah, a real vampire, and she, you know, <laughs> proceeds to faint. And Malibu's like, I don't get it. What made her freak out like that? I didn't even have my va- vampire makeup on. Goes, bump a bump a bump, you know, <laughs> like you know. Because do you really need it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I think um, it's going to get more pronounced as they get into the RSG phase of this, you know, when the uh, the art, you know, goes full on. Like they, they call it um, that style of uh, Archie artwork is called Bigfoot. Have you ever heard that phrase? No, not now, pertaining to art. Yeah, what it means is basically uh, anatomical exaggeration, you know. So like you look at Archie and he doesn't like, look like a person would look, right? You know, and so... It, like Popeye's forearms? Yeah, well, more like, you know, like big nose or like, you know, crazy ears type things. Just like oh, okay. exaggerated features. And so that's, you know, I guess shorthand they call it big foot. Because maybe like, you know, guys taking a big step or whatever. Um, so Scooter, once it's taken over by uh, Joe Orlando, is going to go to that Bigfoot style of, of art. Mm-hmm. And at that point, and we might loop back around to look at the, the vampire elements of Malibu become even more pronounced. Yeah. Because now they're going over the top with it. Um, but uh, but yeah, like I said, I just wanted to give a brief overview, like I say, so we don't uh, you know miss out on any little corners of the supernatural in DC. Um, but uh, but more importantly, I think you know for our music focus show, you know now that we've taken a look at a fictitious musician, I think we should actually look at the real world musicians that DC for a very uh, you know short time in their history decided to try to monopolize upon uh, with the magazine uh, Teen Beat. Great, let's do it. So I'm not sure of the, you know, the full, you know, background of Teen Beat, like, you know, how it came to be. I would have to imagine, you know, that uh, given what we saw in, you know, Scooter Scoops or whatever, that, you know, Barbara Freelander, you know, might have been a bit of a, uh, you know, music buff or whatever. She certainly Mm. seemed to be, you know, up on the on the trends. And then probably, you know, given the fact that uh, Jack Miller, you know, was a bit of an Anglophile, you know, he probably, you know, followed fairly closely the the British invasion. So they were writing about stuff that they knew. That they knew, right. So this might be, you know, I'm imagining, I'm just speculating here, but this might have been their personal interest that they sold DC on said you know you know what's all the rage right now things like Tiger Beat all these little like Beatles magazines kids want to know about music maybe we can cover you know something of that market and you know because of our unique nature as a comic book sort of undercut them a little bit you know because they're selling their magazines for a little more expensive we can hold that 12 cent price by just printing our stuff on newsprint or whatever Hmm. and so you remember you know all the uh, advertisements that we've seen you know keep stressing that it's the 
only 12 cents. 12 cents. <laughs> yeah, now, Mag. And so, uh, so let's go ahead and take a look at the first cover here. And sure enough, you know, <laughs> that's the very first, you 12 know, cents. In, 12 cents in groovy color. And no comics code. No, oh, no comics code. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, obviously this is a quote unquote, a magazine. Yeah. It's not a comic. Um, so we see, you know, on our, uh, on our cover, you know, sort of a, a day glow, you know, sort of, you know, happening type fonts just all over the place. You know, the inside story on the blues project, uh, the animals out of sight. All about the Jefferson Airplane, uh, the Beatles, then and now. What's that? For out of sight. I've always seen out of, out of sight spelled with two T's. Two T's? Yeah, that wonder, looks weird. Yeah, maybe that's a band. I don't even know. Oh, this, <laughs> maybe this, it is. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The monkeys, are they splitting up? Uh, we get the exclusive interview. Uh, teeny predictions. You remember our little mascot here, this sort uh-huh. of like twiggy looking girl is a uh, teeny. She's not a mascot. <laughs> Mascots are animals. Oh, what is She's she? a fan. A fan, okay. She's our guide. Yeah. And uh, Hollywood Happenings. We see the inside secrets of of Peter. Peter who? Maybe You know Peter. Maybe Peter Torque or something. <laughs> so, and, and, we'll find out. And, uh, and Moby Grape. Uh, so let's crack it open and uh, I don't know a lot of those names. right off the bat uh, we see Moby Grape do you know these guys? I do not no this uh, my dad actually um, when I was growing up he was always fond of telling me concerts he'd been to he saw he saw Hendrix actually um, Ooh, but nice. uh, I think at one of the concerts uh, Moby Grape was actually opening up there um, for Hendrix? Uh, no I don't know for Hendrix or whatever I'm saying one of the concerts my dad saw you know this was the opening act um, they're sort of claim to fame I guess you know if, if you could say is uh, this dude here, the guy making this sort of strange face. Yeah. He's a guy by the name of uh, Skip Spence, who, um, bit of a uh, an American, you know, uh, musical tragedy. He had sim- sort of similar to, um, you know, uh, Sid Barrett, you know, from Pink Floyd. Yeah. Um, sort of became a casualty of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, hallucinogenic drugs. Right. Um, you know, uh, and I think both of them, you know, they found out later were diagnosed as schizophrenics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the combination, I guess, you know, of, you know, LSD and, and you know, and their schizophrenia just sort of pushed them over the edge. Um, Skip Spence actually wound up going after the uh, the drummer of Moby Grape with an axe. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So oh they uh, they they forcibly had him uh, committed. Yeah, I guess so. And uh, you know they kept him there under observation. I think you know for a couple of years, and then the sort of urban legend. I, I don't know if this is true or whatever, but a lot of people you know cite this. You know, like in the industry, is that the day he was released, he. Um, uh, in his hospital pajamas, just got on a motorcycle, drove to a music studio, and isolated himself and recorded a full album. Now that album is phenomenal. Okay, so you've heard it. I've heard it. It's uh, it's an album called Or, and uh, just a real like you know high watermark of like you know psychedelic rock. Just mm-hmm. you know sort of like swirling, you know almost like you know uh, Pink Floyd type sound or whatever. But but at the same time, really like empty and desolate you know there's mm. a uh yeah it's just it's a haunting haunting album um but unfortunately you know that was the only one that he ever cut you know as a solo artist <laughs> like, so he took his pj self <laughs> and just went into obscurity again? yeah exactly i think you know he had more more problems you know with drugs i think you know uh he was being supported by some other musicians or whatever but just never went on to anything mm. additional you know the, the sad story of uh skip spence um but let's see what else does uh Teen Beat have to say. Uh, they open up with their pledge, you know, welcoming us to the Teen Mag that tells you what's really happening. All the articles and pics compiled for this premiere issue were specially selected by our staff to bring you the most up-to-date facts with an X and inside info about That's your weird. fave groups and stars. 
Uh, send us as many letters as you like and let us know what you think about us. That's really the only way we can improve, you know? So let's hear from you so we can make Teen Beat really out of sight. Love, Teeny. Thanks, Teeny. <laughs> Thanks, Teeny. As uh, we go down a little bit, we see another little teeny shot. <laughs> Lots of terrific, she says. Um, but then right below that, um, you know, we see our credit box, you know, editor, Jack Miller, associate editor, Barbara Freelander. Oh, yep, and she, not just initials. <laughs> no, she finally got a, a full credit in you know, a magazine. Uh, let's see. Uh, the art director, Saul Harrison. He's just a, uh, you know, a production guy. Uh, Jack Adler, uh, who we've seen do, you know, some of the colors, you know, on some of our comics. Mm-hmm. is apparently the staff photographer, uh, feature reporter, Mary Marks. I don't know that, but... That's that's two girls. Uh, another woman. Um, it's published by National Periodicals. All right. So let's see what else Teen Beat's going to give us the inside scoop on. Uh, Beatles, then and now. Um, so it's so, sort of dawning of the... Uh, Sergeant Pepper era, you know. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They, matter of fact, it says yeah. Ever since Sergeant Pepper, they've really become the voice of the now generation. It's their uh, <laughs> Pepper era mustaches. Face fuzz. <laughs> Where did you say that? <laughs> the second line. Oh, before they sprouted face fuzz. That's uh-huh. funny. Uh, let's see what else. Every mother's son. I uh, I flipped through just so you know. I flipped through this magazine before, and they are really hepped up on every mother's son, which to my mind is like a one-hit wonder. You know, uh, come on down to my boat. No. Come on down to my boat, baby. You know. Oh. Yeah. But yeah, I think I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. It's a fisherman's daughter, uh huh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, like I say, sort of like you know, early, you know, uh, like I say, early psychedelic rock or whatever. But like, I don't know, man. We get to see a two-page spread, you know, as teenies like bopping along to you know these uh, one-hit wonders. As, uh, we turn our page and we get to our, our feature story. You know, are the monkeys splitting up? Bum, are they? Bum, bum. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. The uh, the monkeys are, are kind of a uh, a strange thing to, to talk about or whatever. You know, for a really long time, you know, I uh, was never a fan just because, you know, I was like, oh, they're not a real band, you know, blah, 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 whatever. But I don't know. In, in recent years, I've really become... Yeah. Not be a fan. yeah, I mean, they, they're fun, but I mean, the, those who say they weren't a real band, you know, kind of do have a bit of a point. Like, you know, um, only two of them are actually like musicians, right? You know, Mike Nesmith and, uh, and Peter Tork were both sort of local musicians from uh, Southern California. Um, Davy Jones actually was a, uh, a, a stage actor, you know, in, in musicals. Like, I think he came to prominence uh, playing the Artful Dodger in, uh, in Oliver. Okay. Um, not, yeah. the, not the movie version, but I'm saying on stage. Yeah. And then, of course, you do know where Mickey Dolenz comes from. Circus Boy. You're right. He's, a, he's an actor, he's a child actor, you know, playing Circus Boy. Um, so, as a quote unquote band, they're not really real. Like, in a sense, you know, they put together, the, the, you know, uh, the uh, director, Bob Rafelson, who um, was actually, uh, you know, a uh, huge, you know, in, in that era with uh, a lot of the uh, local actors from there, like, you know, Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper. Mm-hmm. He hung with that whole crowd. Um, so he put together this, you know, TV show, sort of a satire on the Beatles phenomena, and then assembled these four to play the parts of a band like that. Huh. Um, but then, obviously, you know, they had, you know, music of their own. You know, a lot of them, you know, penned by Neil Diamond. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, did uh, you know a lot of the writing for them? But uh, you know, but they put out albums and so on and so forth. So the illusion, you know, of them being a band, it's sort of meta, right? Like. In one sense, they're not a band. In another sense, they are. They be- they became a band, yeah. I would say, because like they gave concerts, and I know that. And this is a little embarrassing, 
but I did go to their 20th anniversary tour. You went to a Monkeys concert? I did, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, in recent years, I, I've sort of become like an apologist, though, for the Monkeys, and the reason being is that I saw the uh, the movie that they put out, I think, right after the cancellation of their TV show, and, and I think right on the cusp of, of them breaking up uh, from 1969 called Head, which was written by Bob Rafelson, who did the TV show, and Jack Nicholson. And for those listening, if you have never seen Head, stop what you're doing and go to YouTube. The entire movie is out there, and it's amazing. Like, you know, if, you know, if you're prejudiced against, you know, the monkeys, you know, being sort of goofy from the TV show, watch Head. It's like a metatextual statement on fame and the nature of reality versus fiction. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it is truly a work of art. Like, you know, I, I really, really like this movie. So, like I say, you know, highly recommended. You know, check it out. And, uh, you know, and you too may, may grow to love the monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, we flip through. We see a very bad drawing of the uh, the mamas and the papas. Like, I don't know what uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> they were doing there. But Cass Elliot's got like a, you know, quadruple chin. <laughs> uh, let's see what else. Flip, flip, flip. Uh, Hollywood Happenings. What is this? This is like sort of like I guess uh, movie gossip. Uh, Sally Fields, pretty star of Screen Gems' new ABC series of Flying Nun, just returned from a three-week vacation in Europe. Good for you, Sally Field. Ooh, look, she shopped at Carnaby Street. <laughs> it's mod Sally Field. Yeah. Um, but uh, this though, I did want to point out. There's like a a half-page shot of Bill Cosby. Um, Bill Cosby, it says, uh, is making it very big on Teen Beat. He picked up uh, six, count them, six motor scooters in Greece while filming an I Spy segment there. Uh, by the way, in his new Beverly Hills mansion, he's having a completely soundproof room constructed. Oh, really? <laughs> Why, it asks? Uh, so he can bang away on his drums without flipping out the rest of his household. What else? Yeah, what else could he, what be, else? he be banging away on in his soundproof oh, room? Oh, that's awful. <laughs> no, I know, but it's just so, like, ironic. Yeah, that's, that's really weird. Uh, let's see. Uh, two faces of uh, Peter Noon... Uh, Herman's Hermits, ah. like you know. Oh, well, you do know, right? I do know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. As Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter, right? As uh, the, uh, I don't like Peter Noon. <laughs> I'm just like looking at him. He's such like a, a, a dorky looking dude. And I, honestly, I don't like uh, Herman's Hermits that much. Like they strike me more of like a a novelty band, you know. Like, well, yes. you know, I'm Henry the Eighth, and you know, actually, I do like one of their songs. You know, the, there's a kind of hush. Oh yeah. yeah, I didn't realize that was them. Yeah, that's them. But uh, I don't know. There's something about his voice. It's too like you know. Hi, I'm Peter Noon. You know, it's just like it's it's just like so like I don't know, little boy or something. Uh, What do we got? uh, Zalyanovsky. I don't know. Oh, Love and Spoonful. Apparently, the dude's breaking up with them. Ooh, the new animals. Dude. Oh, you like the animals. Oh, dude, I love the animals. You know, both both incarnations, right? Um, for uh, for folks listening or whatever, um, probably my most uh, favorite, you know, musical artist, I would say, would be Nina Simone. You know, mm-hmm. I, just, yeah. I just absolutely love her. And uh, and she, you know, and her music was actually a huge influence, you know, on the lead singer of the animals, uh, Eric Burden. Like, a lot of his, you know, early sort of, you know, blues and, and jazz-inspired, like, takes on music, you know, were inspired by, by Nina Simone. Um, the House of the Rising Sun, mm-hmm. that's actually a cover of one of her songs. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but the new animals, you know, what this is, is basically Eric Burden's, like, attempt to grow, I think. You know, um, he had, you know, sort of reached, you know, the top of the pops, as it were, you know, with uh, with the animals, you know, that sort of blues type thing. But then, you know, when, um, you know, 
uh, psychedelic rock w was on the rise or whatever, he sort of became uh, like a spokesman for that whole like, you know, San Franciscan, you know, uh, well, matter of fact, that's one of their big songs, one right. San Franciscan Nights. Yeah. yeah, but he sort of became like, you know, the uh, Summer of Love type spokesman and the new animals, you know, were really reflective of that. Sort of a more, you know, floaty, hippie vibe, you mm -hmm. know? And uh, yeah, I really dig Eric Burden. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, Blues Project, um, kind of obscure. Um, Blues Project had uh, one big hit called um, Flute Thing, I think you know is the is the name of it. And uh, and I would know it because it was actually it was uh, sampled uh, by the Beastie Boys mm -hmm. for a song called uh, Flute Loop, you know, like Fruit, fruit Loop or whatever. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's how I know uh, Blues Project. There's also a band called Meat Beat Manifesto that has a song called Fruit Fang. Fruit Thing was that the techno band or whatever. No, it's electronic. I don't know that I would call it techno. Yeah, and yeah. is that is that related to flute thing? Yeah, yeah, it's a direct lift. Oh, you thought it's a sample there too? Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so obviously Blues Project or whatever. Then you know is one of those um, you know bands that they. Uh, uh, do sampling from oh and speaking of sampling <laughs> let's turn the page or whatever so i i've got to point this out or whatever so it is a two-page you know uh story on a music festival that takes place at palisades amusement park you know which you would expect it's dc obviously you know as, as nancy pointed out you know there was that cross-promotional mojo going on between comics and palisades park uh -huh. um, but they're listing you know some of the local bands who played there and one of them, you know, as I'm speaking of sampling, is Parliament. Oh. Which is, you know, the the P-Funk, you know, like, you know, George Clinton, so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, but this is in the early days before they got all, you know, sort of glam with like Bootsy Collins and all that. You know, this is like, you know, the early days. But I just find it ironic, right? You know, finally, the Parliament gets to go to Palisades yeah. Park, you know, <laughs> at least at least one of them, you know. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are the, the Parliament of Funk. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm your host, George Clinton. <laughs> so, no, it's, it's very cool. Uh, what else you got? Teeny's predictions. She's saying who she thinks is going to hit it big. Uh, Procol Harum, who, uh, I mean, I guess they hit it big with one song, right? Whiter Shade of Pale. Yeah. And uh, Bee Gees, of course, yeah, I mean, totally big. couldn't make a bigger prediction than that. Uh, but then I think she missed the mark on the Free Spirits and the Tremolos, who I've never heard of either of those two. Me either. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Evening of the Supremes. Um... The Birds, probably no, most known uh, for the fact that uh, uh, David Crosby came out of there, you know, from mm -hmm. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And uh, on the facing page, you know, we have a Teeny's Jigsaw, you know, sort of like nine panel grid, you know, I, I guess you're supposed to like cut these out and uh, and figure out who it is. Uh, Teeny does give us some hints. Um, she says that he's groovy, he's super, and he's turned on. How many more clues do you need? <laughs> so, I, I don't know. Could you, could you well imagine who this might be? Yes. It, it's pretty easy to tell with the green knit cap the on there. The knit cap? Yeah. Well, Mike Nesmith. Mike Nesmith. <laughs> exactly. All righty. Uh, come fly with us. A little piece on the uh, Jefferson Airplane, which... Uh, <laughs> I find a little bit ironic or whatever, you know, they're they're talking about how they are a, um, you know, a sort of San, uh, San Franciscan band or whatever, you know, um, speaking about the summer of love. Um, but it says, uh, the word love is perhaps the key word. Look magazine in a five-page color spread titled Jefferson Airplane Loves You called the airplane's music Love Rock. Very much the voice of today's happening generation, the airplane is the first Bay Area group to gain a strong national following. 
Uh, but unlike so many of the other groups, they do not raise their voice in protest. <laughs> Which I just sort of like really? raised an eyebrow because like, yeah, Jefferson Airplane is like one of the biggest protest bands like of yeah. all time. So that's kind of funny. Uh, let's see. A little, a little teeny thing. Hi, I'm your gal teeny. If you're still wondering who I am, well, in a manner of speaking, I'm you. And you... And you! <laughs> in other words, I'm just a bird who digs the, the groups and all the faves and what's happening. In other words, you might call me the mini spirit of Teen Beat. So I think she is a, uh, uh, like a sprite maybe. Which, tie it in, that's like, you know, hey, we're a magic show. She must be a little fairy or something. <laughs> and then our, our back cover then is just the monkeys who uh, very much look as though they might be breaking up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they look a little wistful. And actually, uh, Nesmith is missing his hat there. Missing his hat? Yeah. Hmm. All right. So that, then, is the only issue ever published of Teen Beat. <laughs> because... Because it didn't go over well? Or? Well, no, because just in two months, you know, they put out a second issue um, retitled Teen Beam. Now, we're going to hold off discussion of, you know, why that is or whatever, you know, and we'll just, you know, take a look at this first. Um, trust me, Teeny provides us a full explanation. Uh, so we see our cover here. I guess it's a, a Christmas-themed issue, rather appropriate, I guess, for our show, heading into the holiday season. Uh, we see, you know, young Peter Noon, you know, from the Herman's Hermits, you know, I guess frolicking and uh, around him, you know, is, uh, uh, that's what's inside, the Rascals, the Monkey's Family Album, uh, what's I say? Oh, Love and Spoonful, uh, the Association, <laughs> EMS. You know, in big, you know, every mother's son. You know, they're still hawking that that one hit wonder two months mm-hmm. later. Um, and uh, and then uh, <laughs> the monkeys on a Christmas ball. <laughs> you know, hanging. So let's crack this open. Um, to our interview, a Teen Beam exclusive with Herman's Hermits, and uh, this little shot here of our interviewer. Who do you think that might be? Barbara Friedlander. Barbara Friedlander, exactly. She, uh, you know, is uh, she, she similar to uh, David Naughton? She apparently is making it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> she's gone. You know, from uh, just her initials to a full credit to now a uh, a picture. Yes, a, a, a green tinted you know photograph. What's well, a big deal? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think up to this point, the only thing we would have seen from DC is you know maybe some caricatures of like Julia Schwartz and like Gardner Fox or whatever. So, um, so yeah, she sits down with. Uh, with Peter Noon and um God, this is so great. What? Yeah, I'm just I'm flipping through the the interview, or whatever. I'm just, I'm hearing stupid Peter Noon's voice or whatever. She's asking him like <laughs> how he celebrated uh, his Christmases. She's like, you know, what did you do last year? What did you do two years ago? What did you do three years ago? Three years ago? Let me see. And suddenly, Peter's eyes danced and twinkled. Oh, actually, that wasn't too bad. In fact, we had a grand time. We were in England, acting in a musical pantomime show, strictly for kiddies, you know. That sort of thing is very popular over there. Did you dance, too? asked Barbara. You should have seen me. I was terrific, Wasn't I, Barry? Barry remained silent, <laughs> says the interview. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, God, we wish we were in another band. <laughs> so, let's see. Okay, now, yeah, so he flipped the inside. Now, here is the explanation as Teeny, you know, strikes a very, like, you know, um, a, a pose of pathos, you know, just holding her head, and says, Dear readers, we changed our last name because, well, to be honest about it, there's this other teen mag, in all frankness, a very exciting one, called Tiger Beat, and we figured that the tiger would start growling when he spotted our beat. At least we didn't change our first name. Teeny would never stand for it. 
I sure wouldn't, says Teeny. And wow, so, she just kind of called him out. Yeah, well, it called them out. I think they called, you know, DC out. You know, basically, I think Tiger Bee probably sent a cease and desist, you know. Oh. <laughs> you know, so, uh, all right, let's see what Teen Beam holds in store for us. Our, uh, our first letter page, tell it to Teeny, um, which I think, you know, A, there hasn't been enough time to solicit letters, you know, and as I'm flipping through these, I think these are all plants because every single one of them uh, hawks the fact that it's only 12 cents, you know, like, I can't believe it, a full color teen mag for only 12 cents, you know, says this one. I first saw Teen Beam advertised, I noticed its price of 12 cents. Oh, as a matter of fact, we know this is fake. Yeah. Because it says when I first saw Teen Beam. Teen Beam, they couldn't possibly, because this is the first issue of Teen Beam. Yeah, exactly. And then and our final one, you know, again, uh, along comes a magazine crammed full of fresh news and photos for only 12 cents. Like, you know, like, what a coincidence. Is it all of them? <laughs> yeah, every single one's like, okay. wow, you're only 12 cents. Yeah. Like, and why are you trying to, like, hawk that for somebody that's already bought this magazine? Exactly. <laughs> they, they know they paid 12 cents. Yeah. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, Yardbirds. Oh, this is, um, matter of fact, I'm going to use this opportunity to say that, you know, our show is Magic and the Supernatural. Um, this he, this hereby justifies the inclusion of Teen Beat and Teen Beam on Parliament of Rooks um, because the uh, you know guitarist for the Yardbirds, one Mr. Jimmy Page, is uh, quite a renowned magician. He uh, you know yes he follows the teachings of uh, Aleister Crowley and uh, you know sort of Golden Dawn and you know Thelema and all that. Huh. So we have a magician in the. There you go. <laughs> I'm going to tag him as you know, in the, Mage. Yeah, <laughs> Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy Mage. <laughs> It's funny. So, uh, Teenies asking the Yardbirds uh, what their New Year's resolutions are for 1968. And uh, I'm just going to read through this because it's actually kind of funny. Um, so, the, filing, the following dialogue ensued when she asked them what their resolution is. Uh, Jimmy Page's like, I haven't made any New Year's resolutions, resolutions since I was eight or nine. Why not? Like, oh, what's the point? I don't have any major vices. And uh, Chris Dreha says, Oh, Mr. Perfection. It's not that, says Jimmy Page. I, I just feel. Um, I just. I, it's not that I feel like I'm perfect, I just know someone would make a crack. What about you, Chris? asked Teeny. Do you make any resolutions for 68? Frankly, it never crossed my mind, says Chris. Uh, and you, Keith? Uh, I make New Year's resolutions every, every day. What do you mean? Just what I said. Why wait until the end of the year to promise yourself you're going to do this or you won't do that? I'm always doing something I wish I weren't doing <laughs> and not doing something I wish I were. So I'm always prom promising myself to reform. Well, that's not a New Year's resolution. That's just like, you know, a regular practice. <laughs> yeah. And then Teeny asks the last guy, uh, you know, Jim, you're the last. Uh, do you make any New Year's resolutions? It never crosses my mind to do it, says Jim. It's like, <laughs> what an article. Like, she's like, ask Scorpio, what are your resolutions? Like, we don't have any. Well, that would explain her face up there. Because, <laughs> yes. like, her hand's on the side of her face, and she could easily be saying, oh, my. Uh... All right, and so I'm just going to pause here real quick. So, you know, obviously, you know, the strict out, you know, music coverage, you know, might not have been doing it last month. Um, so, like, you know what, comic this up a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so here we have, uh, you know, I guess they're, they're focusing on the, the most easily cartoonable of the bands, you know, the Monkees. And they've done, you know, a little Joe Orlando, you know, full page, uh, you know, uh, um, drawing, uh, you know, of the Monkees in sort of period clothes. And then following, oh, you know, we go into a, a two-page spread of the Monkees Family album. Um, basically, you know, our, our four guys, you know, as little kids. You know, we see baby Mickey Dolan's, you know, bare butt. I never uh, want to see this again. <laughs> Peter Tork in, like, little Lord Fauntleroy clothes. It's just, that's uh, ridiculous. His short pants. <laughs> um, and then, like, and then some, you know, I was going to say full-color photographs, but no, black and white no. photographs <laughs> on full-color background. <laughs> 
uh, another Hollywood Happenings um, with my favorite little adorable Scotsman, you know, uh, Marie McDonald McLaughlin Laurie, uh, fave British singing star, better known as Lulu, hmm. you know, the uh, uh, girl from uh, To Sir With Love, you know, who actually who sings yeah. the, the title song. That, um, honestly, you know, from this era, I would say that is probably one of my favorite songs. It's just a, uh, I really love songs that have, sort of have a, um, a lyrical counterpoint to the music. Like, they don't follow necessarily, you know, with the... Uh, uh, with the melody, it's sort of like sung across it. Um, like one of the ones I always think of is like you know, first time ever I saw your face, mm-hmm. you know. But but this one, to Sir with love, is exactly that. Like I think if somebody other than Lulu were like to sit down and like attempt to sing this, they would have a very very difficult time. Yeah, it's just sort of like a, a free form, you know, lyricism that, that I really dig. Uh, oh look who it is, Joan, Joan Rivers. Oh yeah, oh that's so sad. Funny people, Joan Rivers and Flip Wilson. <laughs> Great ad- admirers of each other's work. <laughs> Take time out to bowl. <laughs> More Every Mother's Son. God, they are really hepped up on Every Mother's Son. Love that and the monkeys. Yeah. Uh, Inside Faves. Uh, just re- revisiting some of our things. Oh, Cass Elliot. Good Lord. Maybe that wasn't such a bad drawing. <laughs> that... She's Yeah, they're just uh, sizable. She's a big girl. Just flipping, flipping, flipping. Paul Revere and the Raiders. I dig them. Kicks just keep getting harder to find. And and the Young Rascals actually. You know their name always sort of belies you know how good their music is. Whenever whenever I hear Young Rascals, I think in my mind I sort of conflate it with the Archies. For a reason, so when I, I think I think I know why. I think I see young rascals, and I think little rascals, which oh. makes me think of the Archies, yeah. like sugar, sugar. But yeah, no, yeah, yeah. no, the young rascals are like you know, uh, how can I be sure? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I dig them. Um, so, oh, and there they are. They get the uh, the inside back cover, you know, sort of, uh, um, you know, little headshots of the the red god. They are a very uh, strange looking band. <laughs> And then our, our uh, back cover is the uh, the loving spoonful. Um, so yeah, so that is uh, you know like I say just a, a brief overview of DC Comics you know foray into you know late sixties musical coverage. Um, you know there was only ever you know these two issues. Apparently you know the oh. the concept you know didn't uh, didn't Make take off. You know I, I th- if I had to speculate you know probably what it was was that you know nobody knew how to find it. You know like. A because it, it looked like a comic book. Looked like a comic book, exactly. And you know, like it wasn't on the magazine stand, so kids who were going to you know buy music magazines would never get it. And then kids who were going to buy comics would be like, "What's this? I'm not buying. This is not a comic book." Right. And you also, know. it wasn't approved by the Comics Code Authority, so their parents would never <laughs> let them have it. Their parents wouldn't let them buy it. <laughs> You're not reading about those monkeys. <laughs> Look at this naked button here of Mickey Dolan's. <laughs> so. Um, so that, as I say, you know, was the end. There was no third issue of, uh, of Teen Beam and, uh, in very short order, you know, no Jack Miller or, or Barbara Freelander. Um, you know, we mentioned before that, uh, you know, Scooter, you know, number 11 was the, the last one that, uh, um, you know, uh, Miller edited, you know, it passed to Joe Orlando. 
um, Strange Adventures, you know, where he was doing the uh, the Dead Man stuff. Uh-huh. Um, that pa- is going to pass to the um, the new editor that they're going to get from uh, Charlton Comics, uh, Dick Giordano. And then the writing duties on that, you know, uh, had been scripted by, you know, Miller and, and drawn by Neil Adams. Yeah. Um, in very short order, Neil Adams is going to take over the writing as well. You know, oh, just, so he'll do both. Yeah, yeah. He'll just, Dead Man will just be his character. Um, you know, so it begs the question. So, you know, what happened, you know, surrounding Jack Miller? Um, there's, uh, you know, a couple different theories. You know, there's a variety of factors that went into this, you know, um, not the least of which was the fact that, you know, um, in very short order, um, DC Comics is going to be acquired by uh, an outside company, um, Kinney, you know, and, and we'll get into all this, I think, you know, when we talk about the the artistic purge. Um, but basically a mandate came down from them to say that, uh, you know, we don't know what sort of operation you're running here, but you got to cut costs somehow. And, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, uh, you know, one of the big things that, uh, that Carmine, you know, Infantino, now editorial director, you yeah. know, did was basically, you know, take a hard look at uh, editorial practices. Um, he kind of had a novel idea, and, and like I say, we'll talk at greater length about this, um, but basically, you know, appointing artists to become, you know, editors. He thought, you know, the artistic sensibility... Um, you know, was more uh, important in putting out decent comics or whatever than, you know, uh, traditional editing, you know. So hmm. maybe Jack Miller was, you know, part of, of that, you know, chopping block or whatever. Um, number two, you know, is sort of internal politics, you know, um, coming into this whole uh, artistic purge. You know, the, the core idea was the, the fact that, you know, a lot of these older creators were looking for benefits. And hmm. some of the editorial staff was actually sympathetic to that. Um, you know, there, there was a, you know, a sort of liberal faction, I guess you'd say, you know, inside of D.C., uh, people like uh, Jack Schiff, you know, who had done House of Secrets, House of Mystery, uh, George Cashdan, who we haven't talked too, too much about, but he was in, in charge of, like, um, Aquaman, and, and I want to say, uh, um, you know, maybe maybe the early teen titans, you know, might have been George Cashdan as well, but certainly um, we'll, we'll look at him next week, actually, because uh, he's integral in the whole animated side of, uh, of DC Comics. Okay. Um, but he was one of the more liberal editors. But so, too, you know, was was Jack Miller. You know, so when there were, you know, this internal, you know, schism happened inside of DC, you know, maybe Miller was just, you know, on, on the wrong side of that. Mm-hmm. Um, with regard to Barbara Freelander, you know, it's, it's sad to say, but the fact of the matter is, you know, uh, point number three, you know, with regard to these two leaving is, people just didn't like her. You know, like, oh. <laughs> like DC Comics and, and you know, and he... Like I say, I'm not a fly on the wall, but the vibe I definitely get from reading a lot of these, you know, interviews was just an old boys club. You know, like it's these old school cats who had known each other, you know, since they were teenagers. You know, Mort Weisinger, Julius Schwartz, you know, grew up together. Um, it basically becomes sort of insulated, you know, as a company. And they're just like, you know, why is this, you know, woman suddenly getting all this power or whatever, you know? And so I think she was marginalized and, and in very short order, you know. Um, and, and I'm sure it didn't, uh, you know, help the fact that, you know, she was having an affair with uh, with Jack Miller. I'm sure. And it also probably didn't help that she got her picture in, in her magazine <laughs> and none of them ever did. You think Mort was jealous? Yes. He's like, well, how come I'm not in Superman? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, I... Uh, I found a, a little, and like I say, it's super, super hard to find information about these two, um, but I did find like a little, you know, quote, um, not even related to them specifically, it's more having to do with uh, Carmine Infantino's history, uh, but he was talking about how um, in the early days when he was moving into the DC offices, you know, he had been, uh, yeah, I guess he'd been drawing, you know, um, you know, in, in his home or his, you know, his home office or whatever, um, but I guess he was looking to get a little bit of office space in DC, and uh, so there's a, a quote about that here it said um, 
they ask him, uh, before we get any further into that, uh, let's talk about Dead Man. Uh, when Arnold Drake picked Dead Man, uh, or pitched Dead Man to Jack Miller, Miller turned it down. Arnold told me that you were sharing an office with Miller. Uh, what led to that? And Carmine says, uh, I think he had invited me to come up there. I wanted to work in the office for a while, and they gave me space to work. Um, this is right before he became cover editor, you know, asked the uh, interviewer. Yeah, I was drawing Batman all the while, and I even said, Erwin, I'm sick of working at home. I want to work in the office. He said, well, come in and share the office with Miller. So I did. Um, then you were working in the office before you became the cover editor. Uh, for how long a period? That wasn't very long at all, says Carmine. Uh, was anyone else besides Miller in that room, or was it just the two of you? <laughs> they were leading them, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it was, it was Miller, me, and his girlfriend, <laughs> says Carmine. Uh, Barbara Freelander? Uh, she was the assistant editor. Yeah, says Carmine. It was a small room with them in there. I sat in one corner. Erwin gave me that corner, and Jack was not happy with me being there, by the way, because that was his domain. I didn't care. I just did my work. Uh, plus, says the interviewer, you're probably interfering with his love life. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, dude, interviewer, like, chill out. Right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that, you know, is fact number three. Um, but probably, and, you know, and, and I'm going to preface this by saying, you know, uh, you know, these are not my words. I don't want to cast aspersions on, on anyone's, you know, life and history. Um, but it is, you know, mentioned in several different spots um, that Jack Miller and, you know, his departure from D.C., uh, was actually under a cloud um, because they caught him uh, stealing. Stealing what? Stealing artwork. <laughs> oh, that's that's bad. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go into a a couple uh, little quotes here, um, which actually precede um, the tail end. So the you know, but this is basically is to set a bit of a precedent. Um, so like I say, you know, Jack Miller, you know, had very expensive tastes, right? You know, as an Anglophile, you know, he enjoyed the finer things in life. He, he wore those tailored suits and mm -hmm. like say the jeweled cufflinks and, you know, drove, oh, right, right, drove right. a Jag and all that. And you got to kind of wonder like, you know, how's he affording that? Like on a comic book salary? Uh -huh. Like, you know, we talked before about, you know, uh, the big deal that was made, you know, to Carmine, you know, from Stan Lee, which was basically, you know, in those dollars, only 150 grand. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's enough, but it's not really that, that, that much, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so how's Jack Miller affording all this? Well, I guess the story goes even back farther than his eventual, eventual you know, art thievery. Um, there's an interview here by a, um, an artist by the name of uh, John Romita, who is very, very famous with regard to Spider-Man. He is the, um, the artist that took over after Ditko left. Okay. Um, John Romita came on, and he um, very famously created uh, Mary Jane Watson. Um, oh. Yeah, but he got his start um, doing romance comics, you know, for DC. That's why he created a girl. That's <laughs> a good girl. <laughs> um, but uh, but they're talking to him about you know his early days at DC and the and the whole concept of uh, kickbacks, um, you know in, you know inside the uh, the editorial offices and uh, and they're like, um, did you catch wind of any nefarious things like kickbacks? And John Romita says, uh, actually, Jack Miller was very blatant about it. After being with DC for about seven years with all the women editors, I never had the slightest hint of kickbacks or any kind of seamy underside. Jack Miller takes over, and the first Christmas, he had me at his desk to talk about a script, and there was all these gift certificates on his desk to be signed by artists. I was too naive and stupid to even know what it was about. I asked one of the artists about it, and they said, oh, did you give him one? Did you sign it? It was like a $100 gift certificate for Macy's. I said, no, I didn't even know what it was for. Uh, he gave me one, but I just put it down going, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I was such a stupid kid. Uh, I didn't know why he kept giving me work. I guess he regarded me as one of the top men in the romance department, but I think he was probably pissed off at me after that. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so basically he had a scam. Maybe he got a whole, like, a book full of, you know, gift certificates or whatever. 
he would have the artist come in, sign them, and if they did, he's like, okay, you get a good assignment. You know, we're going to give you, you know, maybe cover this month, something like that, you know. And if they didn't, he's like, okay, well, you're going to get, you know, like a half page or something. Yikes. You know, yeah, it's pretty rough. Um, another another bit, and this is, the, like I said, the tail end about the whole, you know, uh, art thievery thing. Um, they're asking uh, Dick Giordano, who, um, you know, is the editor, uh, comes in, you know, a little bit later. Um, they say, you know, what happened to Jack Miller? And uh, Dick's like... Well, he was accused of stealing stuff from the library, and he was fired, which personally I thought was pretty silly. The artwork was routinely stole by everybody, including me. <laughs> so, but, oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Well, Dick Giordano was a, a sort of younger guy or whatever, and uh, he goes, I, I got some Aquaman pages because I wanted them. Uh, they were going to shred them up. That's what they used to do back in the day. Oh, oh I could see then it's kind of like taking something out of somebody's trash, Out of somebody's trash, yeah, but, you, but as we go on, you'll see that you know what Jack Miller was doing was actually a little bit more severe than that. Um, but uh, Dick Giordano says, you know, uh, Len, Marvin, Mark Hannerfield uh, built tremendous art, art collections by going into D.C. after school, working for them for free in production, and they pick up some artwork before they left. Uh, artwork wasn't returned to the artist in the days it was destroyed. Um, so, yeah, so that's phase one of stealing. You know, you basically take the original sheets, whatever, you know, the artwork, and maybe sell them. Um, but, what, uh, <laughs> but what Miller was doing was a little more severe. Um, they, uh, in D.C., would have bound copies of their original comics, okay? So, like, every comic they published were in these, like, you know, nice volumes or whatever. So if you need a reference, you're like, oh, what's going on action number one? You go to the library and, like, pull it and whatever. He took, so, like, an action well, one. Well, let's listen. Oh. So this is a, uh, a conversation here with Carmine Infantino. Um, you know, and they, they were asking about, you know, um, was Jack Miller, you know, fired for this? Of course, says Carmine. He was stealing stuff all over the place, artwork and books. Uh, but that's a different subject, though. I wasn't fond of him. He showboated a lot. He was having an affair with his assistant. <laughs> he just won't let that go. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Carmine wanted to have an affair with her. <laughs> uh, he used to go to lunch with her all the time, and he'd write these stupid romance stories. Uh, he held the department in his hat, you know you know what I mean? Uh, but he ran out of money because he'd take her to lunch and dinner, lunch and dinner. Uh, he didn't make that kind of salary, so he had to steal. Uh, you know how they found out? Um, the, guy, the, the, uh, the guy that began selling comics to, uh, Phil Suling, asked the, uh, the interviewer. Uh, a little better background. So Phil Suling is a uh, was a fan originally you know big um fanzine you know mm -hmm. producer or whatever who got the novel idea hey let's have conventions like he oh yeah he came up with the concept right in new york it'd be these small things where people come in with their old comics and so on and so forth uh -huh. and so phil suling you know would go around and try to find like you know premium items that he could sell you know original artwork or uh -huh. you know like you know different things um so uh the interviewer asked you know phil suling and Carmen's like, yeah, he came to me and he said that Miller offered him the first couple editions of Superman from the office. <laughs> he said, Carmine, I got a problem here. I said, what did you do? He said, well, I bought them. He said, you're going to bring them right back. Whatever you paid, I'll give you. Uh, I saw the old man, uh, Jack Leibowitz, you know, who was the president of D.C. at the time. He's like, Jack, we got a problem. And he went through the roof. Get that SOB out of here, said Leibowitz. Yeah. Get him out of here now. So we had to get rid of him. I had to do it, says Carmine. I, uh, he knew they caught up to him. Um, but I discovered later uh, that he was dying. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, so he might have had medical bills. Yeah, well, I'm sure he did. Yeah, you know, but... Uh, but that wasn't the way to go about it. No, not at all. But uh, so this would have been, uh, I want to say, late 68. I think they, they finally, you know, caught him and let him go. And uh, and then, unfortunately, like Jack Miller passed away in, in 1970. Um, Barbara Freelander um, sort of drops off the face of the planet. Like, I tried to do a little bit of research on her. Um, she worked... A couple years later, I think in 1970, with the uh, the artist uh, uh, Mike Esposito on a uh, a joke mag, you know, similar to Mad Magazine, they tried to put out their own, you know, sort of like version of that. Uh -huh. um, but for some reason, that didn't really take off. And then 
I'm not 100% certain, but you know, I think this adds up a little bit. They, um, if you look, you know, online or whatever, try to search out Barbara Freelander. There's a series of vegetarian cookbooks, okay, that uh, are published in the late 70s, mm -hmm. you know, by Barbara Freelander. And, you know, I don't know necessarily that it's the same woman, but it's kind of a unique name or whatever. But interesting thing is that they're all published out of the UK. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know. Like, in, in my, you know, romantic little, you know, vision or whatever, I like to think that, you know, maybe, you know, she always had that, that fondness after having met him. And it's like, you know, after he passed, she's like, you know, I'm going to go to the place that he loved. I, it's, it's completely made up. But, you know, like, you know, I don't know. Like, I'd like to think of a, a happy it's ending nice. for, we'll go for with that one. Yeah, Barbara Freelander. Um, and speaking of happy endings, you know, that uh, sort of brings us to the end of, uh, of our show. Um, I don't know necessarily whether you want to issue judgments. I mean, I don't know if there's enough scooter material to either, like, you know, let the bird live or die. Not so much. Not so I much. mean, it, it looks cute, but I, <laughs> I don't have anything to really judge. To really judge. Yeah, I think, like I say, you know, maybe... Maybe we'll read a longer story, you know, if, if there's a, a Malibu, you know, slash monster focus story. Maybe we'll do that a little bit later. Um, teen Beam, Teen Beat. You know, I think we've determined that there are magic elements. You know, Teeny is apparently, you know, a, 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 sprite. a sprite from another land. And, you know, certainly we have the, the high mage, you know, Jimmy Page. In, <laughs> so, in, oh, it rhymes. <laughs> oh, that's real magic. So, you know. <laughs> so, uh, I will let you cast a judgment on that. Take Teen Beat, Teen Beam collectively and what's your what are your thoughts on dc's you know foray into to music review all right well i i didn't actually dig it i didn't like the layout or or anything and teeny you know I just, she's kind of cute but she's also kind of annoying like as a sprite i think i would have like swatted her away <laughs> um yeah i'm, I'm just I, well i mean there were only two issues anyway so i'm not really you know, too off base by, you know, killing a bird on this one. Yeah, the the, the, the bare-butted Mickey Dolans doesn't tip the scale. It, it really didn't. In fact, that would have gone the other way. The other way. I'd never want to see that again. And and I wash can't my eyes. It. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have a, a dead bird. Um, but, since, you know, a matter of fact, though, since we're talking about music, I, um, I've been remiss, I think, in our last couple episodes giving, um, you mm. know, musical credit. Um, so let me just, you know, spin back a little bit. You know, I think the last one that we credited was uh, episode number 32. Um, so off the top, uh, episode number 33 was our uh, our Dead Man thing. That's where we uh, focused on Eagle. And uh, and that was a another uh, Maduro song, mm -hmm. um, uh, Decapitation Mystery. A good um, one. Number 34 was our, uh, our Thanksgiving special. And... Um, and that was uh, we didn't actually have music to begin with. Actually, I did little sound bites from uh, you know the very famous you know Thanksgiving themed episode of WKRP uh, Turkeys Away. The very mm -hmm. excellent episode. Yes, Les Nessman, <laughs> the humanity. <laughs> They're dropping like bags of wet cement. <laughs> so, so, but then we wrapped up, and I, I thought it appropriate to uh, you know close out with the you know the the always classic you know theme song to WKRP, which I don't know the name of, but like I, in my mind, I like to think it's called Wet Tooth Bartender. <laughs> Why? Wet tooth bartender. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's actually uh, so that's an artist by the name of uh, Tom Wells, and uh, and I think that they're actually not words. I think he was demonstrating to them the type of song that he would like to play. It was just making nonsense. I was like da 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 da. But they like, or maybe he did say wet tooth bartender. <laughs> yeah, maybe he did. Wet but tooth. They, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they just, uh, they use that as is, and so that's what we used, you know, to close out 34. Uh, 35 was another Spectre, and so I've been trying to stick with the uh, the Radiohead stuff. 
Um, so very, it's like it's oddly, you know, appropriate, you know, thematic song uh, had to disappear completely uh, by Radiohead. And then, uh, and then this one, you know, obviously, you know, the, the sort of monkey focus on, uh, you know, Team Beat, Team Beam. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went with the monkey song, uh, Look Out, Here Comes Tomorrow, uh, which, you know, a little footnote, that is actually written by Neil Diamond. So. Your favorite. That's right. Neil Diamond. <laughs> I'm the real monkey. <laughs> so... All right, that uh, that wraps us up for the, uh, this week. Uh, let's uh, just pause real quick, I guess, give our contact info. Um, you know, if you like this episode and would like to find, you know, 35 others like it, you can do so at our website, which is... TPORpodcast.com. TPORpodcast.com. Um, you know, if you'd like to follow us in, in you know, different venues, um, uh, first and foremost, you know, uh, you can uh, follow us on Twitter. At TPORpodcast. At TPORpodcast uh, or Facebook. Hmm. You can do it. <laughs> uh, Facebook.com slash TPOR podcast. Very good. Exactly. Yes. Although I would say backslash. Oh, okay. <laughs> In case anyone accidentally was a forward slash. Um, you know, if you'd like to comment, you know, on this, you know, and, and, you know, don't want to use any of those forums and you want to contact us directly. Like a personal email. A personal email. You can do that. TPOR podcast at gmail.com. Exactly. And then you can subscribe to us at uh, a, a wide variety of venues uh, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Podcastpedia. And, uh, and feel free to leave us reviews at any of those. You know, all the reviews that you leave on iTunes, you know, help us out, help us get, you know, additional exposure, you know, bump us to the top of the queue. Um, so feel free to do that as well. Rate um, us five stars. Rate us <laughs> yes, five stars. And, uh, and with that in mind, um, that's all the time we have tonight. Uh, we want to thank you, as always, for joining us. We hope you had a good time and hope to see you here next time on the Parliament of Rooks podcast. Thanks, everybody. Look out, here comes tomorrow. That's when I have to choose how I wish I could borrow someone else's shoes.